Hey, everybody. How's it going? Welcome back to another episode of the podcast. I'm really excited for this interview with Amy McCabe. We just had such an awesome conversation. Uh, It was my first time really having a conversation with her, so I'm excited for you to get to be there for that. Uh, Before we dive in, though, I just have three things that I want to share. Number one, I'm excited to be able to say that I've released the Gold Method app, which is my practice systems made available for you. Uh, You basically choose an etude, you break it into sections, you figure out what tempo you want to be at at the end or your goal tempo, and then you choose a tempo to start at, and it gives you two weeks of all the repetitions, all the tempos are laid out, and everything, you just got to show up and do the work that it tells you to do. I really hope that this tool being available for people will help make their practice more efficient and more effective. So if you're interested in checking out kind of the way that I practice and how it might apply to you and your goals and the etudes you want to work on, go ahead and click that link in the description. Make sure that you use the code GOLD21 when you do the subscription part of it so you can get your first month for free. The next thing I want to mention is make sure you stick around past the outro of this episode so you can hear the secret message from our mastering engineer, Brandon Yoakum. Uh, He always leaves these really good things for all of us to think about. And the last thing I wanna do is just take a second to thank our sponsor for the podcast, Houghton Horns. For those of you that aren't familiar, Houghton Horns is a family-owned business in Keller, Texas, and their mission is to spread the joy of music through providing the highest levels of products, services, and resources to the brass playing community. As musicians, it's simply a fact that we will be spending a significant portion of our lives with our instruments. Unfortunately, many of us can feel stuck with a bad fit, fighting to get the sound that we want. If you and your instrument aren't getting along right now, Houghton Horns can help. They have an incredible selection of brass instrument makers in stock, including Adams, Bach and Kahn Selmer, Eastman and Shires, Engelbert Schmidt, Paxman, Tyne, Yamaha, and more. They even have vintage and consignment instruments available as well. At Houghton Horns, they strive to put service to the customer as their top priority. Whether you are a beginner student, a hobbyist, or a full-time professional, Houghton Horns can help you find what you are looking for. Go to HoughtonHorns.com for more information. Hello, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. Hello, everybody, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. I'm Ryan Beach, and today I am joined by Amy McCabe, a member of the President's Own Marine Band, a trumpeter slash cornet player. I don't know how often you guys switch back and forth, guys being colloquial, excuse me, um, how often you switch between the two. Uh, I know I have spoken with Chris, and he says he seems to play cornet a decent amount. Is that true for everybody in the group, or are there some people who happen to play more, or is it just kind of whatever you get assigned? Uh, it's kind of whatever you get assigned, but there, you know we do actually operate in a section of six cornets and two trumpets per se. Um, but the, even the cornet section, we often play trumpets just based on the rep. So gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. Uh, well, this is the second introduction, so I actually know now that this is your fifteenth year as a member of this ensemble. So uh, a veteran and. Um, yeah, I, I've, I've become more aware of of you as a soloist and being able to uh, have more of at least 
like I said, more on social media from what I've seen, some of these opportunities. And a lot of people I know have spoken very highly of you. So I'm excited for this opportunity to be able to get to know you a little bit, to pick your brain about things. Uh, and hopefully we can all learn from your perspective and uh, from your wisdom. So before we get started, thank you so much for being part of my show and giving me some of your time today. Yeah. And thank you for hosting a platform. I know it's no small feat to do that. So we appreciate yeah. it. Well, let's get started where most of my interviews get started. Just however far back you feel is relevant for us to kind of get a sense of how you got into music, how you progressed, uh, what your education was like. And, you know, from there, we'll just see where it goes. Yeah. Um, so I grew up in central Illinois, kind of in a small country town surrounded by cornfields. And um, I never really had a lot of formal lesson training, but loved playing in all the musical ensembles. Marching band was a huge deal, um, show choir, just whatever, you know, ensemble you could think of. I would, I would love doing that. And, um, yeah, the, the music ensembles at the high school were really just a vehicle for community entertainment, you know, which was kind of a, a neat way to use the high school groups. Um, but yeah, I didn't even get really serious about it until, um, I went to Illinois Wesleyan for my undergraduate degree and um, became an elementary education major studying general education for students. Uh, but again, I played in all the ensembles there and, you know, they ha had a really great music program for, um, you know, again, kind of being in that central Illinois area and learned a lot, but again, wasn't studying and practicing with any intention to become a professional trumpet player um, until I was in the music lounge area where all the practice rooms are. And I saw a poster for the Disney Collegiate All-Star Band auditions that were happening at Northwestern, ironically. And um, a handful of us drove up to Chicago and we took this audition and I got in. Like, it was crazy. So I was like, what, what am I doing? This is like a summer job. I'm playing music. I didn't really have any, you know, formal professional experience outside of, you know, playing in the school pet band and things like that and really got put through the ringer playing with I, I don't know if you know anybody who's gone through that program but I mean Disney really gets the best of the best from around the country and at that time they were only hosting a big band which is really cool I love playing in the uh, university jazz ensemble and um, just went to work uh, learning how to perform you know we did a lot of choreography and it was super showmanship but um, it was also kind of an educational program for Disney too where they would bring in clinicians and um, have workshops while you were also working and playing you know, between six to seven mini shows at the park. Um, and we got paid in like peanuts and uh, <laughs> free rides on Space Mountain. And uh, but it was pretty good. Though. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it was just it was one of the best summers of my life. And I just I couldn't believe that I was given a place to stay and money for playing my trumpet. Like mind blown and had, had, had no idea that was even a life path that people could do. So um, that's kind of where I really got interested in it. And then I was slated to student teach in third grade right after that. And I did that in the fall and it was wonderful and terrible and hard. And I mean, God bless our elementary school teachers. They have their work cut out for them. It's a lot of work. Um, and I was just like, you know what? I think I might try to give this trumpet thing a try. So this is my senior year of undergrad. And I finally said, let's see, if, you know, what is this all about? And the teacher there at the time said, 
you want to be a professional trumpet player, you need to go get a lesson with Bud Furseth. Okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I was like, <laughs> jump right to the top, right? <laughs> <laughs> and I, you know, through one connection or another, um, uh, Judy Saxon used to teach at Illinois Wesleyan, and I had taken some non-major lessons with her, and she was like, well, you know, how about, you know, I, I don't really teach anymore, and I mean, this was in, like, the last years of his retirement, and, um, she suggested getting a lesson with Mark Ridenhauer. And uh, so I started working, I think it was on the Chicago Civic audition list. And I was just learning excerpts for the first time, whatever, and went up and took a lesson with him. And I just, my mind was blown, you know, with <laughs> like the intricacies of all the music and all these like short little excerpts and the just the music. I mean, I hadn't really even like gotten into learning any of it or knowing any of it. And, um, that was really exciting. So that's kind of that was like probably my first spark of getting interested in playing in orchestras and playing for a living. Um, yeah. Then from there, I was like, uh, after Disney, I had some friends that had done that program that then told me about the audition for Blast, which for those of you who don't know, because it kind of comes and goes throughout the years, but uh, Blast was a show that was on Broadway. Started off in London, and then they did a pretty healthy stint at Broadway and they closed just right after 9-11. But I was in the first national touring cast. So that one was still uh, going around and um, I lived on the road and did that show for three years um, right after undergrad. So um, in lieu of student teaching and becoming a third grade teacher, um, I put my dancing shoes on and I was in a professional marching band <laughs> for three years. I think I saw, I think that show, I could be wrong, but I think that show came, or something like it, came to Lincoln, Nebraska, where I'm from. And I, I think I saw something that was like it. it. It might not have been, was there another show that was like Blast? Yes, there was one called Shockwave, and okay. it was kind of like another iteration. They were trying to get it back on Broadway, but it, it never really kind of caught on. So Yeah, I just remember it being like, yeah, I remember it because it was like the indoor marching band thing. That's what I remember about yeah. it. And it was like, you know, high. I think I saw it in high school or maybe it was in high school. I don't know. But I just remember it being like, there's a marching band inside. And that was pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I thought that was, it was very um, ingenious of the star of Indiana people to kind of package this thing. And I will tell you, I mean, the audiences loved it. They had never seen anything like it. They'd never been exposed to DCI. And, you know, they were selling our tickets on the same program as you know my fair lady and all the regular broadway shows that were going through so they're like what just happened this is crazy um, yeah that's so cool yeah and then um i mean the only thing i know personally is that you spent some time at northwestern so i'm sort of interested right yeah yeah so i'm just curious how where that because i did not know there was this like i assumed you took the same path all of us did right yeah and so, like, it's like, boom, you go to this, and then you audition for the school, and then you go to the school, and then you go win the job or whatever. I mean, if you're one of those fortunate people who win it right away. But um, I did not know sort of there was the elementary education component, and then you were a tour member of a marching band. You know what I mean? I think that's that's super cool. So I'm just curious how it how it then led you to a, a place like Northwestern, which is kind of the opposite in many ways of what that opportunity was like. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, didn't, you know, one of my teachers at Westland had given me a list of schools when, you know, they said, Amy, you know, if you want to do this thing, and, you know, Mark Ridenauer, in addition, uh, also said, if you want to do this thing, grad school's probably got to happen, you know, 
So I was like, well, let me just put the pause button for a second and go do this fun thing after undergrad, you know, touring the road. And, um, but I started shedding, you know, I just started learning repertoire and trying to learn etudes. I, I started learning my scales. I still didn't, I hadn't like practiced scales. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, just when, oh man, it was so complicated, but I would try, schedule grad school auditions starting the second year while we would have our um, travel days. So we would travel on Monday, the show would be dark and travel to the next city. And I would somehow finagle the grad school audition in on that day and go um, do that. So, um, and that's my, one of my good friends played French horn in the show Blast and he was a graduate of Northwestern student of Gale. And he was like, Amy, you know, if you want to be a trumpet player, you should try to go to Northwestern or whatever, you know? And so that's, I was like, okay, put it on my list, you know? <laughs> and that's how it that's how it happened. So I auditioned and um got in. You know, I fell flat on my face during the sight reading portion that uh hopefully or the not the sight reading, it was a transposition. <laughs> yep. Do you remember that? Yeah, they put the, the oh, transposition yeah. in front of you and um so that was new for me. But yeah, I ended up going to Northwestern and hung out there for a couple of years and did civic while I was there and then uh, won the Marine Band shortly after that. So Yeah. So I, one of the things I want to sort of park at Northwestern is I just know there's lots of people out there who are interested in the whole Barbara Charlie thing, or as you said it, Charbra. I've never heard okay. anyone say that before. Oh. Um, but yeah, I thought it was like, I thought you misspelled Barbara. And then I was like, oh, no. I see what you did there. I see what happened. Anyway, um, I'm just kind of curious for your perspective, what you feel like uh, was, I don't know. I don't know how to describe it other than saying something like what you feel like you know what for you what was the thing that was special what for you what was the thing that you felt like helped you grow into a player that could you know be successful i don't want to say like what's barbara and charlie's secret because i feel like for everybody you know they teach everybody differently right and everybody just gets something different out of it and so for me it could be one thing when i talked to karen it was one thing when i talked to Stuart, it was one thing so i'm just curious for you like what did you take away from northwestern and your time i also i'm curious which one of the two you studied with and then um just from there yeah like how you felt like that experience sort of uh what you took away and how it prepared you because i know there's lots of people out there curious about this particular conversation so i thought we'd we'd touch on it yeah um I think uh, for me coming in as a grad student without a lot of prior experience in undergrad, and I don't know what you, you did undergrad in Kansas, Oklahoma right? city. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I was a grad student and I was also an elderly grad student cause I'd already spent some time on the road. Um, and uh, the freshmen, when I was there, freshmen, sophomores, you know, somewhere in there, it was like Ethan, Mike Martin and all these you know, fantastic players coming in as freshmen. And I, you know, I, I think I felt like a deer in headlights right when I first got there. I was like, what am I doing here? Like, what is happening? Like, I, you know, it's all so new. Um, so I would have to say that the secret for me was not only, you know, the great teaching, but the environment that you're in. Um, and it, you know, it showed me new possibilities and new levels. Um, but it also was so like collegial and supportive and everybody was kind of like, lifting each other up while you were there while it was still this like friendly competition. So I would say the environment would probably be one of the biggest things. Yeah, I totally agree. And it's, it's something that I think is worth talking about because I think I would wonder sometimes if it were me, you know, if I, I, I taught at a school here uh, for a little while and you know, like it can be, 
one thing to look at Northwestern and hear people talk about the environment and all the great playing and all that and be like, well, basically, that's like that could only happen at Northwestern. But what you just described about the collegial familial feeling is how I would think about it, too, is everyone lifting each other up. Those are things that I feel like Barbara and Charlie actively cultivated because they would talk about because they're married, they have a sort of a that kind of relationship with not only with each other, but then they want that kind of familial atmosphere. So to me, that's something that regardless of what uh, skill level a particular studio might be or how varied it might be, that's something that can absolutely be cultivated and you see it in other studios. Like Whiff Rudd would come to mind. My friend Andy Stetson would come to mind. Like their studios support each other so much that it creates that, sim- that I think, a similar kind of feeling of of a meaningful experience regardless of what whether you're you know going to school with people who would end up at the Boston Symphony, New York Phil, and the Marine Band and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. I just saw with this weekend. I was judging at the national trumpet competition, and I recently got his hands on. He's just come out with a couple of books. I don't know if it's just, mm-hmm. but um, man, if you can get your hands on those, there are gems yeah. in there. So it, it, like you said, like it's not just this. Like you can create that environment for your, even if it's your, you know, fifth grade trumpet students or you know whatever it is. Sure. So. Yeah, I. I asked him if I could interview him on the podcast and he had just written the book. And so he sent me a copy and he was like, you know, like you could read the book and we could talk about that. So I had like one week and I just read as much as I possibly could. And we had a great conversation. I mean, he's such a, I didn't know him. That was my first time I'd ever talked to him was on the podcast. And he was just such a, it's one of the longer episodes I've done because he was just so willing to, to go there. I'll have to check that out. That's awesome. Yeah, it was a great episode, I think, at least. Um, anyway, I just wanted to touch on that because to me, um, that's it's an important conversation because I know people are curious about, like, what's the secret, you know? And I think there are aspects of the secret, like Barbara, I think, that's who I study with, has a knack for understanding how to present excerpts in an audition in a way that is attractive to a committee. You know, I think she has uh, a skill and a gift with that. But as you know, that's not something you mentioned. That's not something Karen mentioned. You know, nobody really mentions that I learned how to play excerpts. Everybody mentions like the the atmosphere for sure. Yeah. Well, um, getting into the Marine Band, I'm curious um, what that I mean, if you kind of want to just talk about because I know it's different than an orchestra job and what your responsibilities are and what that's kind of like, if you want to share a little bit about what your experience of the Marine Band has been like and um, what opportunities, because I know I've spoken to other people in the Marine Band and you you do have that position, but there are times when you have some free time to be able to take advantage of other opportunities that exist. And I know you've done um, you know a fair amount of solo work as well. So I'm just kind of curious if you want to talk about how you manage what your experience with the job is, how you manage finding other opportunities, what that looks like, and then, you know, making sure you're prepared for both things and just, you know, I mean, we can have a full conversation about it, but maybe we'll just start with like, you know, what's your experience with the Marine band? What's that job like? And maybe how it's different than what some people might think it's like. Yeah. Oh my gosh. The Marine band is awesome. I mean, they, you know, the military band scene in DC is awesome. You know, there's so many great players here in town. Um, and I feel like at the Marine Band, they really, um, we still hold music first and foremost, you know, along with our military duties, which are also, you know, very important, but like at the heart of our unit is music, which is really nice. Um, so yeah, we, do, we have a really active chamber music program. Um, we have a full concert series, uh, fall tours. 
Um, and then we also have a, a very important ceremonial duty, which is supporting full honors funerals, full honors funerals at Arlington National Cemetery. Um, we support different events in town through patriotic openers and um, and of course our White House uh, duties. So we provide music for anything that the president or the commandant of the Marine Corps needs. Um, yeah, I'm just kind of figuring out all those puzzle pieces and how they all fit in um, has been really interesting. And I felt really lucky to, um, I really was excited about um, the chamber opportunities and the solo opportunities when I when I got into the band. So I tried as much as I could to sign up because we just sign stuff up and then it gets chosen through a process if it's you know deemed appropriate for a certain program. And so I just wanted to make sure that's what I was doing the most of because when I was at Northwestern, I was so focused on winning a job that I spent a lot of the time just like doing excerpts and doing that. I was like, well, I'm going to be here for at least four years. I might as well like start learning all the solo rep and, and chamber music. So um, yeah, that's that's kind of how my experience in the Marine Band has, has gone. And in terms of like the extra stuff that, that happens, you know, of course, that is always number one, but we do have 30 days of leave a year, which is like our personal vacation time and, you know, things that happen after hours um, we, we can take part in. And so I've uh, been able to go on short tours with the Sarah Brass Quintet. Um, that's been a lot of fun. Um, also, I, I'm in a group in town called the Barclay Brass, and it's an 11-piece brass ensemble. Um, we have a, an arranger who's got really good arranging chops and transcription chops, and so um, we try to put some of those pieces together. Um, yeah, just anything that pops up. Um, got some more projects coming down the pike, and so we'll, we'll see. I'll, I also am in... A, I uh, work with a group in town here called the Boulanger Initiative, and um, that's a, a volunteer organization that's trying to get more music um, that's composed by women out and about, just, you know, composers from the past, composers of the present, um, just trying to diversify people's music stand a little bit. So That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. So... You've just this is this is going to lead to a, what I hope is a great conversation uh, about identity because when I was in school I saw myself as someone who sits in the back of the orchestra and that's just what I do right mm -hmm. to me those are like the famous last words this is what I do and so I would you know taking some of what you described your early your early education was like and then you know you taking time off and it doesn't seem like to some degree other than what you just said about wanting to win a job it doesn't seem like you had like a strong like this is who i am this is what i do you know this is what i'm good at you just seem to be like i just want to perform you were in sort of a big band a marching band you know all these different opportunities so i'm kind of curious what your relationship is I don't want to say with yourself. I mean, that's the easiest way to say it. But just like, what's your relationship with your identity as a trumpet player where you feel like you can step into so many different roles and be successful? Do you struggle with feeling like uh, imposter syndrome and at, at any time of feeling like, well, I'm good at this, but I'm not good at this and I'm going to step into it, but I don't feel ready, anything like that? If you have struggled with that in the past, how have you come through it? If you don't struggle with it as much anymore, you know, I'm you know, kind of where I'm headed with this, just trying to unpack this because I think a lot of people deal with sort of pigeonholing themselves into one thing. So I'm kind of curious for you as someone who does a lot of different things, what, what is that like? Where did that come from? How have you worked through struggles, stuff like that? Yeah. I mean, I think identity is huge, you know, especially as musicians, we've been, I think a lot of people who are attracted to it and maybe be going on a limb here, um, like might really actually need that exterior thing to identify with, you know? 
like not only are you I'm Amy but I am a trumpet player as well and um yeah I have had to work to kind of separate those two like I am Amy and that's who I am you know I'm Amy and I like to laugh loud I'm Amy and I like chocolate you know like you know like all these things that are that don't have anything to do with what I do as a person and um yeah I mean that kind of that is a lifelong process though you know because we are in these you know, three-dimensional meat suits walking around and we have to, you know, get around in the world. And that's how we tell the difference between me and you is, you know, I have brown hair and you have red hair or, you know, whatever. Sure, sure. And so, um, yeah. Um, and I'm not saying I'm, I'm perfect at the finding stretch of the imagination, but um, trying to recontextualize, like, I'm Amy and I just, you know, was in the finals for this audition versus I'm Amy and... Um, here's how I like to sing this song, <laughs> you yeah. know, like I'm trying to, you know, identify with that more than with prior. Um, that yeah. sense? I don't of know. course it does. Of yeah. course. And so you're just not really looking to any one thing. It sounds like to define what it is that you do rather you're just sort of open to whatever it ends up being. It sounds like to me, I don't know if I'm misrepresenting, but I'm trying to like sort of unpack it. Yeah. Yeah. And just not, not, I think overly identifying with the, that thing you do, whether it's trumpet playing or cross country skiing or whatever it is, um, can't in, unless there's healthy balance there, it can lead to issues down the road. I mean, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think this is a great conversation. For me, I've spoken about this on my podcast and in other ways that this I had like didn't get not getting tenure in Indianapolis is what started this conversation for me where my life had basically gone on one trajectory until that moment and it caused me to like be like, "Well, what if I don't have a job? Like, who am I?" right? And so when you know, you said I have had to do work to separate these two things. For me, that work was basically like a, the catalyst was that moment of struggle or adversity. I'm curious if you have similar experiences where it was sort of fine until it wasn't fine. And that's what started that kind of conversation. Is that the case? Or did you have a conversation with somebody and it sparked your interest in sort of learning from their example? You know, I'm just curious how you would come to this because I think it's very hard to realize that we are not these things that we do. And I, I don't think it's even like natural to think this way. And it usually takes some sort of thing to break us. So I'm just curious if you have any, some sort of experience that is like that, that's, that was the catalyst for this kind of thought. Yeah. I mean, uh, how much time do you have, right? Uh <laughs> Many, lots of time. <laughs> um, so I, you know, I got really sick when I was in grad school, I was at Northwestern and um, I had, a diagnosis of a type of cancerous tumor that was really rare. And, um, you know, that's when everything comes to a screeching halt, you know, I'm sure, you know, people that are listening to this or other, you know, you, whatever, have had that experience, whether it's not yourself, but somebody that you love and care about. And so, um, at that moment, you know, being a trumpet player, getting a job, you know, getting, you know, preparing for my recital at school, or whatever, like who gives a food, right? <laughs> <laughs> like the first thing is getting healthy, right? You know, what does that mean? You know, what is health? Health can, it is manifested on many levels. We are these multidimensional beings that have an emotional self and a mental self and a physical self and the spiritual health, you know, there's all of these 
um, aspects. And so um, part of my healing was also, you know, this physical healing, trying to, you know, figure out how to put Humpty Dumpty back together again. And then part of it was also fixing all those other areas, you know, where did I feel um, emotional stress in my life? Where was my stinking thinking? Um, uh, where, <laughs> when did I become disconnected from a higher power? Whatever that looks like to you. Um, and so that was the part, the very initial part of trying to break all of that down. Um, and I got better and I'm good, you know, but it's still, it's like an onion peel, you know, once you peel one layer off the onion and you're like, holy crap, like this is what's real. And then you hit the next layer of the onion peel and something else is going to happen. <laughs> you know? And so, you know, I think that as long as, for me, if I keep just peeling back the onion layers, you know, it doesn't have to be cancer again. Um, it can be like, I've, you know, gone through performance anxiety issues. I've fallen flat on my face, like probably was having a panic attack while playing a concerto on stage, you know, not a fun way to end the day. Right. Um, <laughs> no, <laughs> you know, and like, why did that happen? You know, our subconscious can do so many things, you know, it, it's like screaming at us to wake up. And so, um, I am just ultimately curious about trying to peel back those onion layers, figure out what my subconscious is doing, you know, to help, help me wake up <laughs> and, uh, keep peeling back those layers. So. Yeah. I think that's all. I, I, I just totally get it. I totally understand. I've been through so many of those same kinds of conversations. Yeah. So here's an interesting for me, an interesting like layer is that as I was going through that, these things that used to matter to me don't matter to me as much anymore. As you described, we have all these different things we're trying to do. Those things don't nearly matter as much as like my health and all of the different ways that you described it for sure. How do we then reclaim caring about these things that are not superficial, but they're not on that same level of sort of life and, you know, important for life, like trumpet. How do we reclaim that? Like, I'm going to go for it and I'm going to care about this and I'm going to do my best uh, when we recognize it's not that same level of importance. If that, does that question make sense? Yeah. Um, yeah. You just have to, and, and, and people do this all the time. Like that moment when you're just like, you know what? I don't want to take auditions anymore, you know, or, you know, um, I, I'm, I don't want to play trumpet anymore. Or, you know, they have like, you can shift your life up in many ways. You know, it doesn't necessarily have to be something traumatic. Um, but I encourage it to not be that. Um, uh, yeah. But then how do you find meaning in what you're doing? Um, I think it becomes more meaningful. You know, I think, I, I had this very visceral moment of uh, remembering after I had that surgery when I was in Chicago and I was slated to play third trumpet on Rite of Spring, like five weeks later. And um, one of the surgeons was a like amateur trombone player. And I was like, hey, I really want to do this concert in five weeks. And I play my trumpet. You know, usually they say like six to eight weeks, like heal, <laughs> don't do anything. And and he's like, I think you can do it, you know? And that was like a beacon for me. I was like, I'm going to get better. I'm going to play that. I want to play third trumpet on Rice Spring with Chicago Civic Orchestra. <laughs> you know? yeah. And and so it all, and, and that feeling of gratitude of being like alive and, and playing music, it like it meant so much more to me than, um, you know, just 
I don't know what having street cred and have Chicago Civic Orchestra on my resume. Like it meant so much more, you know, that moment in time to to share that. Um, so it almost like I feel like the fire is lit even more after mm. going through that because you see like how much music can communicate not only for you, but for the people that are listening to it. And yeah. Yeah, it sounds almost as if that especially this moment you're talking about with the cancer and the and the two and the surgery that it like almost like refocused what you care about it's yeah. like now these things like I'm actually probably just going to let go of some things that I recognize don't matter but the things that are left I recognize how much more that they matter and you know I'm just I'm a believer that that's like what adversity does in our life in general you know it it sort of clarifies in some ways and we can sometimes not want that we can sometimes want to avoid suffering at all costs um but I'm such a yeah I'm such a believer that it, it just is such a clarifying experience and as you said hopefully it's not necessarily to a traumatic degree <laughs> Right. That would be preferable. But um, yeah, I, I, I really appreciate you sharing. all. I didn't know any of that, obviously, but it totally makes sense how that how you would come to this like this matters to me so much because of everything I've gone through, not necessarily because I just don't have any perspectives. You know what I mean? Like I, that would be the opposite side. I have no perspective. Trumpet is all that matters. It's like you have total perspective and trumpet still matters. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, trumpet can still sometimes you know like pick up I'm not really trying to like vibrate my lips and make a piece of metal like say sing something (laughs) what (laughs) seems so crazy sometimes but um but yeah also it's like a a unique voice that can only communicate words in a certain way or non-verbal in a certain way and um yeah so you know just dig in while you have that skill you know dig in and use it so then how does this manifest in your, this is just like sort of a me question. How does this for you manifest in like moving forward in your career and stuff like that? Because, you know, we have all these opportunities, but I know if I'm not incorrect, you were in the finals for one of the National Symphony Principal auditions, if I'm not incorrect, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. We were um, there too. <laughs> Weren't yeah. you there? Okay. I was yeah. there. I was okay. not in the finals for that audition. I'm oh, pretty sure that's okay. how I knew that. Uh, it's fine. It's not, I'm just curious because like, you know, it's like, how do we, that's like such a specific thing to do. You know what I mean? Like, like you to go from like, I'm going to go, I'm going to, I'm going to go after this particular job. It takes a certain amount. Um, but my assumption is you're not taking every single audition that comes a certain way. So it's not like you're trying to say, I want to be in an orchestra at all costs. So like, how do we determine which ones are which, you know, when we value what it is, but we also recognize and we value lots of part of our, I think it just makes it messier to make some of these decisions about like what, how are we going to spend our time? What things are we going to invest in? I'm just curious if you have any perspective of what guides you in that way. Yeah. I mean, that's hard. Like to have like the discernment and, you know, the knowing of what's right you know it is like i completely speak from a point of privilege to say i'm you know wonderfully employed and so you know you can i can safely take an audition but know that i can still pay my bills you know when i come home at the end of the day so um um yeah i think it's just knowing you know i i do you like where you live do you like the community you've created around you um are you, do you still want this challenge of, you know, playing principal in an orchestra or do you actually like prefer playing section stuff, you know, whatever, um, you know, do you like the town of 
Philadelphia, yeah, wherever the audition is or whatever is happening, you know, I think just having that um, intuitive discernment to say, like, is this something I want to do? So. Yeah. I mean, to me, that's really difficult, right? It's the simpler one is you just take them all, right? Because the the orchestra, like being in an orchestra is the important part, not necessarily the quality of life that will follow or lack of quality of life, depending on where you land, yeah. follows. Like that's not as much of a thought for me for a long time as I just need to audition for everything because I need to be in an orchestra. So, I mean, this might be hard to answer, but I'm sure it'll be a tough question, but hopefully you'll have... Uh, uh, some way to answer it. Like you, what you're describing is I have the privilege and it, totally me, I'm the same exact way privilege of saying like, well, I'm in this position and I can choose to take this kind of thing based on what I feel like the quality of life may or may not be. Do you feel like that same kind of thing can and should guide people who are maybe not in the same position? Like should that we still be considering quality of life or should people just be auditioning for everything until they get into that position? And then they can, you know what I'm saying? Because like, you can be in a position saying, I want to audition for everything. You get in that position, not concerned about quality of life, but there's no guarantee that you'll be able to then move in a different direction after that. So you may be stuck in this negative quality of life. Mm -hmm. I mean, you could always leave or you could always quit. But does this question make sense? Like, should the same metrics be guiding everybody or does it change based on your circumstances? I mean, again, it's kind of a weird, hard question, but I'm, yeah. I mean, we're there. I'm curious. Yeah, I don't, man, I, you know, don't envy the people that are, you know, hitting the audition circuit hard right now, clearly because there hasn't been anything in the last right, year. Right. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, I think that would have to be every person's decision. You know, I think that scarcity mindset tells us we need to try for everything, you know, throw our hat out. But sometimes that's, that's more deleterious to ourselves if we're going to, you know, spread ourselves so thin and, you know, prepare a hundred lists and then not say, yeah, actually, do I, you know, really want to live in Massachusetts or whatever. Um, so, yeah, I, I would say that discernment and intuition is going to win the day any day. Um, but, you know, there's also something to be said for just having the practice of the audition. I know Barbara would probably say like, <laughs> if you just wanted an audition for experience, that's what you're going to get. Right, words yeah. on my head. <laughs> but, yeah. you know, but you know, there, there is an element of that, you know, just kind of knowing, knowing what an audition feels like. But um, yeah, I would say like discernment always wins. Yeah. I I had a, a a quote from a friend of mine because to me discernment comes from experience, right? You sort of just fail a few many 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 times, and then you start to <laughs> determine some discernment from all of that, right? And he would say experience is something that you get right after you needed it. Yeah. And I think it's such a it's such a true quote. Um, uh, but it's yeah, it's it can be hard. I don't know. I just I mean, we're in sort of this like gray area conversation where there's no real right or wrong answer by any means. I'm just I'm kind of curious for this perspective, because for me, I feel like there is a like a way we should optimally think about things, but it doesn't necessarily always mean that that's the way. There's no judgment for not doing that almost, right? Like optimally, yeah, we should say like, will I be happy here? And there is some argument, like you said, for not taking every single audition because you can't ever really commit fully to one. And that's the, that's like how you're going to do it. But then if you don't take them all, you're reducing the amount of chances that you have. Like there's so much gray area in there. And I just, what I'm, I guess where I'm at trying to, sorry for this ramble, but what I'm hoping to do is to try to provide, to try to provide some idea that like, 
what we should try to prioritize above all is just a good relationship with our instrument because long term that will get us where we want to go. And so the fear of trying to lose relevance because we get older and we don't hit those things, like I think that can guide us into making decisions that may not be healthy for us or the right decisions, as opposed to this is a good thing, this is the right thing, and being willing to just continue fighting over the long term. You know, Barbara saying perseverance is the most important aspect of uh, her students' success. I'm, do you, I mean, I just said a whole bunch of things and there was no question in there, but I'm, I'm curious if you have any sort of response to it. Um, yeah, I guess I, sometimes, you know, motivation is hard over the pandemic. I know a lot of people probably talked about, you know, how do we keep everything going when there aren't, you don't have that, um, the looming concert, you know, in two weeks or three weeks or whatever. And I, we all kind of pieced it together in different ways. And for me, like, I have to be working on music that I'm interested in. That's why this, the Boulanger Initiative has been so great, because I've been pulling up all this great stuff that we just, like, that, you know, it just hasn't been part of our curriculum. And, you know, my for me, that's motivating to try to, you know, hopefully get some recordings in the can and get it out there. So when students are programming recitals, they're like, oh, let me do this, too, because that was a really nice piece, you know, not just because it was written by women, but because it was good music that just never got played because they were women probably. <laughs> so um, that to me, I'm like excited about that. Now ask me, you know, if I want to, you know, prepare uh, pictures, signs, Petrushka right now. I'm like, uh, not really. Um, so I, I don't know if that answers the question. I think just well, there really was just, no question. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Yeah. So it's like listening to that spark and like getting, you know, do what you're interested in. And I, I promise you the the paycheck will follow the thing, will the gig will follow, you know, just keep going toward that. So even yeah. if you don't know what it looks like. Yeah. It sounds like this, I had this interview a long time ago with a guy named Bobby Horton. And he just said, if you do things that are worthy, money will follow. Yeah. And I totally agree with that. It's just hard to like, trust in that sometimes you know it's hard to trust the process essentially that if i just keep doing these things that are worthy things will happen and that's okay yeah so what's your been your experience with the boulanger let's use this the boulanger initiative let's use this for example like how did this start who started it how many people were involved like you know like what would you consider to be success if that makes sense like how do you measure like the success of the efforts all because i feel like when you start something new this is like somewhat important to be able to figure out of like, where are we going to spend our efforts? How are we going to do this? Like, so I'm just curious, like to use this as an example, it's a worthy idea, but you've actually created something that's acting on the worthy idea. So I'm just like using this as an example to sort of speak to a bigger way of people might say, I have this worthy idea, like to have an example of what that looks like. Yeah. Um, so the, the two founders of the group, uh, Laura Colgate, who is a violinist, um, in DC, uh, she has her doctorate from Maryland, but she's also the concert master of um, the National Phil and actually a couple of other regional orchestras. So she's, you know, she's going everywhere all the time. And then uh, Joy Leilani Garbutt, she's a, a church organist um, that um, just recently did a Fulbright scholarship in Paris studying French female organ composers. So um, these two ladies connected and got together, um, started everything. And, you know, like every good idea is, from the ground up it's you know a lot of energy like a lot of good intention happening but like trying to actually get it off the ground is it's a lot of work you know mm -hmm. um and over the past i think it's been three years now um 
uh, they've developed uh, an, a full nonprofit, you know, with the, all the paperwork that that requires. Um, they have a board of directors and they have, you know, multiple departments involve everything from fundraising to um, uh, someone who's creating a huge database of all of this repertoire. Um, so people can just go and look for it. Like, oh, I want a two trumpet and piano piece, you know, written sometime in the romantic era, you know, by a female composer, you know, click, wow. whatever, you know. So, so that, I mean, and that obviously that's a, a huge project. Um, there's internships. So if, I don't know if you have, um, you know, college students that listen to your podcast, but um, they do um, cyclical internships. So people can get experience with either marketing or this research development. Um, I've been working, uh, helping to volunteer and, uh, put together regional concerts, uh, chamber music over the, over the pandemic. So, I mean, it's just like, it's a monster that's rolling, you know, and um, they've actually, I think they're consulting with the Kennedy Center on, you know, repertoire and programming. And they they have, you know, people available to do that for orchestras all over the country. Um, they've done some work with the Dallas Symphony already. So, yeah, I mean, it's a thing that's happening and there's a lot of good forward motion. So, um, so yeah. on the right. <laughs> well, I guess one thing, that you said that I think is important to point out too, is that getting it off the ground. That's cool. the part we're talking about too, where it's like, it's a worthy idea, but it doesn't just immediately happen. You know, it takes so much trial and error and so much understanding and effort and time and all that kind of stuff. So, uh, I, I think to me, I was talking to, I interviewed Andrew hits last night who, uh, you know, the brass junkies and I was talking to him about this a little bit too, although we never really covered it. It's just, it takes like, takes a special kind of person to say, I have this worthy idea and I'm going to go through everything it takes to do it. Um, but what the result is like the things that you care about are in the world, you know, and you're making a difference in the way that you want to make a difference. I think that's amazing. So it's so cool to see that there's momentum behind this idea that took time to figure out and, and work. Like you just, they stuck with it long enough. And now, yeah, there's real, real stuff happening. Yeah, and and um, it, yeah, it's and the, the amount of like energy that's behind it is just phenomenal. It's so awesome. Um, and also, I hope that schools are saying like we need to incorporate elements of this into our curriculum because like all like the the two ladies, um, Laura and Joy, and myself included, we're all kind of like how do you start a nonprofit? You know, it's like, you just, you know, start patching it together. You know, I know, um, Mary Bowden went through that with Sarah Graff. Like, how do you do this? You know? And everyone's just kind of like flying, you know, trying to figure it out as you go along until you figure it out. And then you're like, okay, this is how you do it. Um, but we did not learn that in school. I mean, I didn't, but, um, I think it would be a worthy secondary, you know, <laughs> to learn how to market and make a website and, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think some places are, I think some like a select few, if I'm not incorrect, have started to incorporate seeing exactly what you said. There's just the world has changed. And what I'm in, what I'm excited about and what I'm interested in is not to say there's anything wrong with playing in an ensemble or teaching at a university. These are amazing career paths that you can have impact in the world, but to acknowledge that there's impact you can have creating your own thing but you just don't have an institution behind it to help, you know? And so you yeah. have to know what those things are and to, to sort of um, begin to acknowledge that, that, that there may be some people out there who will are, will be good at being their own boss 
and who are willing to put in the effort and the time to make these, you know, worthy ideas happen. So I completely agree with you for sure. Um, yeah. Okay. So we're going to make a little bit of a shift here. We're going to turn the car pretty hard. Okay. I hope that's okay. Um, I got my, my seatbelt on. We're good. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm kind of curious about uh, your 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 playing because I've heard so much amazing stuff. I've I've listened not just li- through my own digestion of what I've heard uh, from videos and stuff, but just the 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 way people speak about your playing. So I'm kind of curious to talk, dig into some of your influences or the things that you value when you are performing, like what is at the forefront of what you are trying to uh, have come across, um, how you feel that you've developed some of these, some of that in your own playing, just, just kind of a, just speaking openly or sort of non-specifically, I suppose, just about what that's like for you and how you feel like you're trying to get your, what you want across. Yeah, I guess. Um, I was always very, um, aural based. Um, I listened to the the Phil Smith excerpt CD over and over again, just trying to recreate every little iota of that. Um, and, you know, very, you know, singing, I sang a lot in at church and, um, just throughout high school and high school chorus and whatever. Um, so I think, that's kind of always the machine going in my head is like, how do I get the song that's in my head out? And how do I make it sound like how it's supposed to sound? And then, and then I try to go backwards and be like, okay, well, you need to do your articulation or your flexibilities or, um, so it's, it's kind of like that. It's like, I have an idea of how I want it to go. And then I'm trying to like physically always make it happen, you know, which is always the hard part. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So I, I would say that's kind of my, how I, how I think about things, but um, yeah. And then get it, try, trying to expand and, you know, hearing other trumpet players, obviously that I admire. Um, but you know, getting out of that box even and listening to other musicians, you know, their styles of music, like how can you weave that into your own? Um, I've been loving listening to opera singers lately. Um, Joyce DiDonato, oh my mm-hmm. gosh, she's a rock star. She's so good. Having that ownership on stage, I want that. You know, <laughs> just that sureness of like, this is how it goes. And everyone is like, listen here, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. So um, yeah, that's kind of my general approach of, making music yeah this is something my my wife kathleen who plays clarinet in the alabama symphony she's the principal clarinetist um she and i talk about this all the time and i'm starting to think that this is actually what can happen i think if we if we rely too much upon like i just have this song that's always been there is like i'm just playing and it can become like a if i don't understand basically you would think here's the model I'm trying to create it and I can be very objective about that because I just know what's different between the two. Have you always been that way because you have, you identify with, I've always had this song in my head or do you feel like you've had this song in your head, but you've struggled with sort of like emotional practicing and getting down on yourself and have had to learn how to be more objective about the process of just putting the mental model forward. Cause a lot of people judge themselves insanely hard in practice sessions when they can't do something. But in my mind, it's not just because they can't do it. It's actually because they don't know what they're trying to accomplish. So they actually just have no path forward. 
but the way you described it, you've always had this path forward. So I'm kind of curious if you felt mm -hmm. like you have not struggled in that same way or if you have and how you came through it. Oh, I struggle. It's <laughs> 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 so, it's so much fun being a guest on a podcast. You can just be like, here's, you know, what I know, but you know, yeah, the struggle is real. I mean, we are all, um, I am very human. Um, so yeah, while I have the voice in my head, sometimes I don't know what the voice is saying or like, you know, like you said, you come upon like a technical challenge where you're just like, I could practice this a hundred times and it's not getting any better. Like, you know, where, like, how do I, where is the disconnect? Um, so yeah, it, it is, it is frustrating. It is something I had to work on. Also, I really like it when, um, people challenge me musically, you know, when they are, you know, try to get me to spin my phrase differently than I had it in my head. You know, first you're like kind of annoyed a little bit, you know, you've got a conductor being like, do this. And I'm like, that's not how it goes. But, and then you try it and you're like, oh, actually that was really cool. Like that we've all had that moment or in chamber music, especially brass quintet. Like, um, so yeah, I guess it, was, it is like my own strong mental model, but also I am, you know, malleable and I love new ideas. And then love it when even more when I'm surprised when I take someone's advice and it sounds better than what I can. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is another interesting point for me because, um, you know, this balance between I hear it in my head, I like it that way versus researching and learning more about the composer, about the style that will influence how we do it, like what this balance is between the two. I think some people can swing towards... I'll just play it the way I like it because that's how I like it. And then I have Sound in Motion right behind me, uh, David McGill's book, where he is the exact opposite, right? It's like we should yeah. almost never do that. It should always be 100% informed and the music will tell us. Uh, and so it sounds like you have an interesting balance of being like, I'm going to do the best I can with what I have now, but I'm certainly open to and I'm actively seeking more inspiration to continue expanding. And that's something I've struggled with a lot, you know, like that side of like, I've always sort of had a good, just general approach, you know, <laughs> but like to become more refined in my music making has been a struggle for me um, because it requires me to dig deep and, and, you know, who to listen to some. So I, the, the question I have for you is when I listen to trumpet players, it can be one thing, but when I listen to singers or I listen to other instrumentalists, it can be hard to take what they're doing and apply it to my mental model because it is so different. So I'm just kind of curious if you have, is it just for you by osmosis? It sort of just works its way in? Or are you listening for specific things that you're trying to take away and put into your own playing? Like, what is that process of taking from another artist you admire and sort of implementing it into your... Because Barbara would talk about this all the time. I'm just kind of curious, like, how you do... How you steal from others, basically. Um, yeah, well, like, for instance, just most recently, um, for I put together a program for the ITG virtual recital conference, and um, I transcribed a violin sonata and uh Isabella Leonardo she's like a you know nun in the 1700s and um it, of course there's just like all this ornamentation that I you know wasn't really familiar with I just listened to there was two recordings that I really liked but just ad nauseum listen to everything I wrote out you know every little more that each of the different soloists put in and you know and made my own choices based on that, or maybe a choice that would be better for a trumpet player. Um, and yeah, I just would listen, 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 and try to take that approach that a violinist has and incorporate it into my trumpet playing. 
never going to sound like a violin player, but I just loved those recordings so much. I wanted to like channel what they were doing essentially. So yeah, I would say it would go in the osmosis, like just aura category. Sure. (laughs) But it sounds like there was a decent amount of effort involved. It wasn't just like listen once. It was like, listen a lot, write stuff down, like really like go over it. Yeah, yeah, slow it down, half speed, you know, try to figure out what was really going on. And and then, you know, some stuff that I really liked that they did just didn't really work on, you know, some of the way the trills were, like they would do some cool bends here and there. I'm like, man, I just it doesn't sound right on trumpet, you know. But yeah. um Yeah, I think a- this is for me, this is an interesting conversation at least because, you know, it's almost as if there's you can have the belief that like I believe anybody can learn how to practice, right? I spent all my time talking about that. But sometimes the 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 idea can be that like the amount of musical whatever we have that's like quote by birth, and I think it becomes difficult because how you become a better musician is like a bit like nebulous, right? It's not like you do this and then you do this and then you do this, uh, and so one of the things I've been working with is sort of trying to figure out just a few baseline things. And and someone like you or me may do this more uh, naturally because we've just been thinking about music for, for people who struggle with music, making little things like drawing brackets of like, I want these notes to become pickups to these other notes or, you know, marking out the phrases. Is that stuff that you ever do in your playing to help make sure you define where things are and how you want to make sure that the music flows forward, anything like that? Oh, yeah, all the time. Um, you know, Charlie showed me the X's, you know, putting big X's over your big peaks and little X's over your little peaks. Um, I had a, my big band director and undergrad uh, from the Airman and Note would always constantly have us put an arrow over a line to, like, keep driving until the very end of that phrase. Um, uh, one of my coworkers, Matt Harding, who's, you know, he's my one of my trumpet heroes, um, you know, and he always puts, like, spin, or I, I know what his little symbol for, like, airspin is, and so, you know, it's a good one to put in, too. Um, yeah, I think visually, we're, you know, we're visual creatures, so it's, it's a good thing to have lots of information. I didn't think about the brackets, though. That's new. I like that. Brackets for pickups. Yeah, I it's like sort of from David McGill's note grouping, and it's not his, it's Tabuto's note grouping, his number right. system. Uh-huh. Um, and so you're sort of, like, just, you know like two or three notes at a time, just thinking about you're constantly just picking up to the next thing over and over and over and over and over again. The thing I like about it, and and I'm curious for your thoughts, uh, because you talked about slowing things down at half speed and stuff too. The thing I like about a visual representation like that is it's something you can do at half speed. You can sort of almost slightly maybe overdo things at half speed that will make a bit, that will make an actual difference when you get to tempo, right? Like you've ingrained the music in those early parts as well as just trying to get the notes and the rhythms. Has that been your experience too? Um, yeah. I mean, I still struggle with slow practice, you know, forcing myself to do it. Um, I was at Tom Hooten or somebody, you know, a couple months ago was like, oh my God, slow practice. Like it's so important and yet we don't do it enough, you know? And it's, um, it does reap its benefits. And um, the, the only thing I would say was like, I, I, I just, I don't want to get too like mental thinking about like, now I'm crescendoing from this note to this note and now I'm, you know, Otherwise, we're in our brain. And then, you know, music is more than just your brain. And so, like, I don't like to get, I mean, that's the work you do first. And then, you know, hopefully let go and, and let it be at the end of the day. But, 
I don't know. Is that, is that how you feel too? Or Yeah, yeah, for sure. I'm just, I mean, to, to espouse my act, my where I'm working right now, I'm so interested in the concept of the subconscious, right? And what yeah. we imprint on the subconscious being something that we can then have access to if we can figure out how to occupy our conscious mind, right? Like what we're thinking about during performance. And I've been asking the question for a little while now, is it possible to imprint music on the subconscious so that when we get to the actual performance, if we keep our conscious mind occupied, that the, like subconsciously we will be playing the music that we want to play? Or do we have to consciously be thinking about the music to be able to play musically? Yeah. Have you um, ever played around with the Musician's Hypnosis app? No. Oh my gosh, it's awesome. I've never it's heard kinda, of it. Oh my gosh. Um, it's, I, it's kind of pricey now. It's maybe like $15 or something, but, um, yeah, it's fantastic. Uh, it's, it's all what you just said. Um, trying to, you spend time quote unquote programming your subconscious and we're visually rehearsing, uh, what it looks like on stage, what it feels like on stage. You can choose different modules, whether you want, you know, confidence or just think about stage fright or whatever, um, you know, talked about keeping your heart rate low and, um, you know, being calm and focused, or maybe you see your trumpet hero standing next to you and, um, you watch them play and you see how brilliant they are. And then you take over and you're playing just as brilliant as them. Like it's all these words that are happening and, and you can put the subconscious one that, that's saying the same thing, but it's very quiet. And you know, the other channels, so you have like two voices going on at the same time. And, you know, the models are 20 minutes or something. It's mm. really, it's, it's, I love it. Yeah, I've never heard of it. Yeah. For like some of where I'm at in my practice, I've been, I read this book. It's somewhere around here. Uh, it's, there's two books I read. One was called With Winning in Mind that referenced these studies. So I went and bought the actual book called Visual Athletics, right? It's about mental rehearsal. Mental rehearsal being different from visualization. Visualization, like everything is happening in your mind. What you just described to me sounds very much like visualization. Like you're not necessarily doing something. You're just like programming, right? Mental rehearsal is like actually going through the motions to the greatest amount of degree without doing the thing, right? So mental rehearsal is like you're going to stand neck you're going to stand next to the golf ball and do a, like a practice swing like you're going to go through all of the things instead of visualizing yourself doing it perfectly you're going to like actually do it perfectly right except for you're not hitting the ball so you can then the thing that's left is more or less you're visualizing that it's perfect so what i've been doing in my playing recently is basically going through every motion of playing the trumpet except for actually playing the trumpet so i'll do the air pattern and i'll finger along i'm actually trying to like like follow the shape of the line. So I'm not just blowing a straight pattern of air, but I'm actually like changing, you know, the tongue position or whatever. I'm not thinking about it like that. I'm just following like pictures. I'm like, I'm just following where the line would go. And in my mind, because if you vividly imagine something, it's basically the same thing as you doing it. I'm trying to imprint like perfection onto my subconscious because without playing your mental model is what takes over. Right. Like, so I'm actually, I've tried to build in mental model um, strengthening into the way that I practice through mental rehearsal. And then so when I actually play, I'm actually just trying to copy what I just did rather than create. It's like I just did it perfectly. I just need to do that again. And so then I'm thinking to myself, well, how do I incorporate music into that? Because ideally speaking, if then that I should be able to physically make it so when I think about something that my process cue, right? To keep my conscious mind occupied, then music should just come out because I've imprinted it on my subconscious. 
as opposed and, to what I feel like I've thought before, which is when I'm performing, I have to consciously be like singing the song in my head. I'm thinking to myself now, what if in my practice, I have consciously imprinted my song on my subconscious so that I don't actually have to sing it. It's almost as if it's quote autopilot. I just have to be focused on the right things during performance to get that to come out. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That's so fascinating. Yeah. And, and maintaining presence, like being present while you're doing that and, and not being like, Oh, somebody just walked out the door or whatever. Um, yeah, it's like letting go of control, but also giving yourself more control almost. Yeah, I, I just, I'm such a, I mean, sorry to give you all my, <laughs> no, that's my, great. my ramble here, but I'm basically all I think about when I play is air forward, right? I'm trying to keep the air as far forward as possible, but because when I've done my mental rehearsal and I've done all of this kind of stuff at these slow tempos through my programs, like I've essentially made it. So if I think that I play the trumpet healthily and then all like basically everything to my, to the best of what I could do is imprinted as what I want it to be. So I don't actually have to think about how to do it because I've imprinted how to do it. So like that motor pattern is ingrained. What I need to do is get my conscious mind focused on something that I, the way I think about it is simple and positive so that it's not complex. I don't have complex thought going on and I'm not being negative about what I'm about to do. And then that basically the way I view it is like if their subconscious is two adults having a conversation and this, your conscious mind is like a child who needs attention. You got to find something that's going to occupy that child for a length of time that will keep it happy so that the adults can have a conversation. And you're yeah. there. You know, does that make sense? Yeah. It's like you're almost kind of like getting out of the way of the work that you've put in. Totally. You're getting out of your own. That's And I've experienced that to some degree where I can feel myself yeah. like moving out of the way. And you, it's, it's not an out-of-body experience, but it's about as close as you can get to that, right? Because you're no longer involved. It's like the work that you've imprinted. Yeah. And, and staying present throughout present being like in your body, um, yeah. is, is probably that, that key for that. And that's why I try one. to focus on a, on like a physical sensation because that has nothing to do with like judgment that has everything to do with this physical sensation leads me to doing the thing that I want to do at the level that I want to do it. The physical sensation being like chops on mouthpiece or something. For me, it's air passing. It's the air passing the lips. If I can feel it there sort of going into the mouthpiece, I know it's forward. If it's forward, I know I'll play trumpet the way I want to with the greatest amount of control. Yeah. Wow. So that's what I'm, that's sort of, sorry. That's, this is your podcast episode. I kind of just, (laughs) (laughs) but that's stuff I'm working on right now. You know, I'm so interested I'm so interested in this because I feel like I'm, cl- I'm closing in on an ability to describe it. Yeah. And then I can share that with others, you know, how to be your best on that day. Like, it's not just like tools for like how to do It's like, I have imprinted exactly what I want. Yeah. I mean, that's, um, I'm in all sorts of fun things. Um, but that idea of that, like you are um, literally, you know, creating with your thoughts and you're creating ahead of the experience or you can create ahead of the experience kind of goes along with that. You know, that's mm-hmm. why I love that meditation app or the, you know, hypnosis app so much. Um, but it's almost like you're, you are able to kind of describe that moment in like such detail and the mechanics behind it. You know, it's not this like out there new agey thing. It's actually, a, you know, a physical process that we can integrate into our, playing in our, you know, high quote, high stress performance experience, you know? 
Yeah. With, with ease. And I mean, to bring it back to our conversation about the blueprint. Yeah. Like, what I find is that people's problem, like, the, the biggest problem is there's no blueprint, right? That's obviously the biggest problem. But when for people who have a blueprint, the biggest problem is that they don't understand how to create that blueprint. Like they have it there, but they don't understand what goes into creating that. So you're basically reliant on just playing the instrument and hoping that the blueprint happens because you have no functional way or no functional understanding of what would move you closer to that blueprint. So you're stuck unless you get lucky. And that's a lot of people, I think. Yes. <laughs> I probably had you know, a mix of both throughout my life, you know, just like sheer luck. And then yeah. also this very measured approach, you know, that requires a lot of work outside of the performance, you know, both on the mental and physical levels and emotional levels too. So you know. as you've, we'll get back to you finally. So sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah. Dude, uh, this doesn't great. happen very often, but if you get me on my thing, it's hard for me to stop. Um, so, What's the result for you? Like, how do you, when you put in this kind of work and you do the, if, you know, if you go through the, the, the hypnosis, just, you know, that kind of thing, you go through all of this and you've really got your blueprint and you've worked toward it and you feel confident about it. What do you feel during performance and what are you focused on during performance? Like those are two different things, right? Like, what do you feel? Do you feel relaxed? Do you feel calm? Do you feel up? Like, how do you feel? And then what are you focused on to be able to stay in that place? You know, I feel like, um, it, like, you know, this, it, at first it started happening once in a blue moon. I remember, um, I took over the solo track for blast and the show opens with one spot on a spotlight on you. And you're playing, uh, the melody of Valero on Kugelhorn. And, um, I just remembered the first time I finally wasn't like jittery and ready to like go and do that. And it just, I just sang the song, you know, it was mm -hmm. like this complete level of like comfort and, you know, it's a, you know, easy, lovely melody, but I remember that. And so that feeling that I had doing that, I tried to fall into when I'm playing, you know, a piece that is not so lovely and easy to play, but to still um, recreate that feeling that I had. Um, I really want it to feel like easy and engaging and for the audience all the time. And we know as trumpet players, sometimes it's hard to recreate that. Um, let's say it's not like I haven't, you know, cemented that into my being yet, but I feel like I have had experiences where it feels um, just grounded. I'm communicating. Um, I'm comfortable on stage. Like it doesn't, I don't feel judged because I'm probably not judging myself, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> like all of these, um, these feelings that you have, like you don't feel the heart racing or if you do feel like your anxiousness rising, it's more like excitement to play rather than, um, you know, like the nerves of fear of collapse or whatever. <laughs> um, yeah. So I guess, I don't know if I answered your question, but that's how I feel when it's going, when I like it, when I like to remember those performances of success, you know, beyond, you know, cause we probably all played stuff and I was like, Oh, that was terrible. And you listen back to it like, Oh, it wasn't that bad, but it felt terrible when I was doing it, you know? <laughs> yeah. 
I think that's so important. I think what you like what what I heard you say, and I hope I didn't. I'm not going to misrepresent. It just sounds like you draw upon past experiences of success to help inform trying to create that space. And what I where I think a lot of people struggle then is they don't have past experiences of success yeah. because they're either playing things that are too hard for them, or the way that they practiced it did not lead them to being able to recreate what they wanted to do at that moment. And so we don't have. And so in some fashion, I think prioritizing trying to set people up so that they have some of these experiences. So when they get out there, they have some experience to draw upon. I, to- I totally agree with you. Yeah. Totally. That, that's like another level of imprinting, right? To have totally. that positive experience yeah, yeah. from the past. I mean, Charlie, so, I'm sure you've heard this story, right? That story about Bud, where he's going to play Brandenburg too. And then Charlie was listening. He was warming up and it was like not going well. And Charlie's like, oh my gosh, I'm going to have to play Brandenburg too on short notice. And he said, Bud put his instrument down and just sat there and didn't play anymore. And then he went out and played amazing. And Charlie asked him, he said, how did you do that? And he goes, I just thought about all the times that I sounded great. And then he went out and sounded great. You know, like you said, it's that imprinting. You're like remembering that, like, you can do this. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and and getting there. That's the other, you know, we've full circle back to Northwestern. We are talking about the environment and just having those multiple opportunities to play in front of people, to play the list in front of people, to, you know, fall down in front of people and get back up in front of people. Like, uh, I, for me, that's like, just doing that over and over again is something that is so healthy, you know, to, you know, in the words of Chumbawamba, you get knocked down, you get up again. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Did I just date myself? <laughs> oh, that's perfect. We all know. We all know that song. So that's amazing. But it's very true. Yeah, I, I think this is an important, for me, it's an important conversation. It's one I spend all of my time trying to figure out how to answer, you know, like these questions of how do we, how do we do this? How do we set ourselves up for these kinds of things? It's the systems that I've, de- I've developed are my answer to that, right? It's like, to me, the way that we practice should reflect what we want to do in the end. And if we practice a whole bunch and then we fall flat on our face at a performance, we should ask ourselves, how did the way I prepared lead me to that conclusion? Because it's not like it's more likely not a random happenstance that I prepared as like the best it could ever be. And then I just fell flat on my face. That's probably not going to happen. So falling flat on our face means that there's something we need to dissect about the way that we prepared, not just like, I can't do it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's why we're talking about it. This has been amazing. I'm so thankful for this opportunity to, to chat with you. Um, I, I just feel like I, I appreciate that you're also willing just to be open and vulnerable and just say like, I mean, I feel like sometimes that can get that word can get overused. You know what I mean? But like, it's very true. You've been willing to, to talk about a whole bunch, a, a whole bunch of stuff and just say this, these are my struggles. And I'm, this is sort of like the last kind of thing I'm curious about for you is like, have you always been that way? Have you (laughs) not been that way and decided you wanted to become, that's how I am. I've tried to become more that way, more willing to open up and share. Uh, But I've been very, not that I've been very controlled in my vulnerability for a lot of my life. Like you'll get to know the things I want you to know, but you won't get to see the actual, you know, struggle, so to speak. So I'm curious, uh, you know, you've been so much that in this interview, so have you, again, have you always been that way or does this something you've started to put a priority on because you value it? And if that's true, why do you value it? Um, I mean, I hate to call Brene Brown on you, um, but you know, vulnerability is like the, 
tipping point of strength and courage. You know, you can't have one without the other. Like, how can you have that? Like, I think this was something that somebody told me once. I was like really fearful of a performance I had coming up and I was so not ready to allow the worst performance to happen. I was so like gripping with all of my strength. Like I will not fail at this. And, um, she said, well, then by doing that, you're also not allowing the very best performance to happen. Like you have to have one with the other, you know? And by like, just letting go and saying like, you know what, I could fall on my face and also I'll live and, you know, thank God that's not our job. Um, but also that's the only way that that best performance is ever going to happen. So by being vulnerable, like that's the connection of strength and, and courage and forward motion, you know? So, um, and kudos to you, you know, that's something you're, you're working on too. I mean, I feel like it's way easier for, um, you know, women have been given them an emotional vocabulary to do that a little more easily. So, um, I think that's great that you're also working on that. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I just think I grew up thinking like not. I mean, I I do agree with you. I think there is certainly the like the male female like men are not supposed to express their emotion, but I just think I, I think I grew up thinking like I can only like trust myself. You know what I mean? And and like I want to get to know people, but I'm not really gonna let people go all the way in and know me, so to speak. And gosh, I was thinking yeah. about this conversation with a girl that I dated for a little while and then we broke up and she said, Ryan, I hope someday you like let people like see you or, you know, get to know you. And I was just like, yeah, or okay, whatever. That was like, that was the summer of 2012. So we're coming up on like almost 10 years ago. She said that to me. And like yesterday I was like, you know, she was right. Like she was right. It took me a very long time to get to the point where I would like, just basically be like, I'm also a person who messes up all the time. And like, I'm doing the best I can and I want to like do it better, but you sort of have to acknowledge that you're not doing it the way you want to do it before you can ever start to move forward, really. And I was just in so much denial about my actions and the way I was treating people and the way I was just making decisions and all that kind of stuff. But I couldn't, like you said, I could never grow. I could never grow until I started to like deal with some of that stuff. And I love that way that you put it from uh, the conversation you had where if you won't let your worst performance happen, you'll never have access to your best performance. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I'm all about this, like peeking underneath the hood of the car and looking at the shadow, you know, whatever young called the shadow self. And like, because that's where all the resistance is. And then when you release the resistance, then like all the cool stuff happens, you know? So I'm on board with that for sure. Yeah, Amy, this has been incredibly enjoyable. I'm so glad we got to do this. Um, If people have listened to this interview and thought this was amazing, I have got to get in touch with Amy to say how much I've enjoyed this. Are there ways that people can do that? And if so, what are they? Um, You can uh, look me up on Facebook. And I am in the starting to put a website together. So it's never too late. But... (laughs) I would say that Facebook would probably be the easiest way to find me. So, cool. Yeah. 
you need to get in touch with me, you can do that on thatsnotspit.com. Also, That's Not Spit on Facebook and Instagram. If you enjoyed this episode or had any feelings whatsoever, please consider giving it a rating and a review on iTunes. And also, don't forget to share it on social media so other people can find the episode as well and enjoy it for themselves. Amy, thank you so much for giving me some of your time today. It was an absolute pleasure to chat with you. Oh, Brian, you too. You too. I'd like to thank Brandon Yoakum for his work on mastering this episode of the podcast. And most of all, I would like to thank you for listening. Stay strong, be kind to yourself, never stop growing, and we'll see you next time. Hello, 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 that's not spit fans, and welcome to the secret message of today's episode. One of my most favorite college professors in journalism school, Professor Larry Wachlin, was famous for his sayings, amongst which is one in particular that has stuck with me all these years. He said, pre-planning is 90% of production and life. In broadcasting and music, we're only live when the cameras are rolling or after the conductor's baton has started moving, but life is always live. The more we plan for a show, the better the show will be, and the more we plan for life, the more freedom we allow ourselves to do the things we love. So thank you, thank you, Dr. Wachlin, for leaving me with this advice. And remember, shh, don't tell Ryan. <laughs>